next day, the great crowd that had gathered heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. This crowd praised him. They celebrated his miracles and with great expectation told everyone about him. But they did not know him. They were waiting for someone who would rule with strength and might. But he came as a humble servant. They wanted him to finally bring their people glory but he wanted to change them so their lives would bring God glory. They were expecting a general who would crush their enemies, but he came saying, love your enemies. They thought he could offer them deliverance from their oppressors, but he came offering deliverance from sin. This crowd would soon realize that Jesus wasn't gonna be what they wanted, and they turned on him before they ever realized he was what they needed. So as they yelled, crucify, Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? Jesus answered, I am not that kind of king. His kingdom isn't what you see here. It won't be established by chaos and war. His kingdom is in our hearts. His kingdom is truth. His kingdom is goodness. His kingdom is righteousness. He is the humble king, the king of healing, the king of forgiveness, the king of love. Today, we lift our voices. We cry, Hosanna, save us. Save us from our sin. Come dwell in our hearts. Hosanna, we worship you. Jesus Christ, our king. go home now, can't we? I struggle with showing that video because I do feel that is a great video to summarize what we're talking about today. But today is Palm Sunday and we're talking about Palm Sunday. What is Palm Sunday all about? So as we begin this morning, please open up your Bibles to John chapter 12, verse 9 to 19. John 12, 9 to 19, and you'll see on, that on the screen here. We'll get to that here in a few moments, so you've got time to turn and once we're ready to read, we'll have that on the screen in front of you as well. But if you do prefer to read it right in your hands, there are some extra Bibles in front of you. You're also welcome to use your tablets or your cell phones. I just ask that as you take notes, don't be lured into that temptation of Facebook and Instagram or Twitter or anything else. <clears throat> so open up to John 12, 9 to 19 this morning. And as we begin, I want to just tell you we are all fans of something or someone. Many of us choose to be fans of sports or of sports teams. You watch all their games, you buy all their merchandise, maybe even attend a game or two every once in a while. If you're particularly a great fan of this sport or this activity, you may even wait, not wait till it's on TV. And you may listen to it on the radio. Now, that's not me. I've got to say, I, I struggle with being able to pay attention and getting to understand what's happening or I listened to it on the radio. But some of you grew up with that, and you understand that. That did recently happen to me, as I wasn't able to attend one of the volleyball games for Bloomer here. 
So we're on our way to Chippewa Falls, Eau Claire, for an activity, for something that we're doing with the family. I just think, hey, I wonder if it's on the radio. And I was shocked to see that Bloomer Volleyball was on the radio. If you're particularly a good fan of something, you go all in and you, you admire it and you do everything you can to be involved. This fandom may also lead into or bleed into other parts of your life through conversations and through activities. This may be through your family, your wife, and your children. This may be through watching the games together as a family. Or even better, maybe your fandom causes a fire within and an urge for you to go outside and play the sport yourself with your kids. Now, it's easy for me to pick this topic because right now, March Madness is going on. And I'm sure many people in here every night are finding one of two things. Either finding that they just can't wait to watch that next game, that next basketball game. Or maybe it's like me, and you find it's disrupting all your normal TV shows. There's no new shows on. Where's my NCIS or my different shows I like to watch? But <clears throat> this, this is not necessarily a bad thing, as, in, as this fandom can lead into great conversations with family, and also with friends. Your fandom causes conversation in the workplace, contest and March Madness brackets, and maybe even your co-workers are turned into friends themselves as you nurture this relationship and you invite them into your house for parties, almost like Super Bowl parties, but March Madness parties, and you're watching those games together. And as you watch these games together, you're increasing this relationship. But where does that relationship go? This fandom may even bleed into the community and into the church, such as moving up here to Wisconsin. You find many of you are Green Bay Packers fans, Wisconsin Badgers fans, maybe a few Viking fans and a few Bears fans. But there's a difference between a fan and a follower. I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing this because I know I've talked about it a little bit in the past, but I haven't talked about it in quite detail. I spoke on the idea of a fan versus a follower. You see, a fan has a favorite team, but he or she does not always stick with that team through both the good times and the bad times. If it's raining or snowing or the team is just in a losing streak, they may not follow their team as much. But if you're a true follower, a true follower, nothing keeps you away from rooting your team. These are the guys that go all out. They wear the face paint. They wear the mask. They wear the cheese heads. Or in my case, I grew up in Ohio. And I grew up in a family full of Cleveland Browns fans. And although I must admit, I always rooted for the Bengals or for the Steelers just because my family loved the Browns. And what can I say? I guess I'm a little bit of a troublemaker. It would annoy them that they had this opposition in the house. You must root for the Browns. This is a family of Browns fans. And I guess I just like to go against the against that sometimes. But I will always remember the merchandise in the pictures of those Cleveland Browns fans of the dog pound. Now, you guys can picture Green Bay Packers fans. For me, I'm picturing already in my head when I'm a little kid and looking at these football cards or watching the games with my parents, and you can see these fans or followers in the, in the crowd at the stadiums wearing these bulldog hats and having their faces painted like dogs, shirts off and painted. They didn't care what the temperature was. 
they were still out there. They may not even have even won very often or at all. Now this is talking about the Browns, not the Packers. The Packers win, the Browns do not. But they were still part of the dog pound. And they were proud of it. They were followers. They had a lot of true followers who continued to root for their team despite the losing record. Now here's where we transition. I think we too need to compare ourselves to this idea or to this concept. When we think of our, our lives with Jesus, are we a fan or are we a follower? And I talked about that before, but what I want to talk about now is we need a DTR moment. We need to define the relationship. Now, guys in here, maybe some guys already kind of crouching down in your seat, starting to not pay attention because you hate those three words, define the relationship. Or you hate the idea. Maybe you've been in a relationship before with a girlfriend or a wife before you got married, or maybe now you're in a spot in your marriage where your wife's saying, we need to define this relationship. What do you want this to be? Who do you want me to be? Who do you think you should be? It's scary because you realize you need to look at yourself. You need to judge yourself. You need to judge each other. You need to think of where are you? DTR stands for define the relationship. We must define the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Are we followers of Christ? Now, sure, you're here this morning. Maybe you're here every Sunday morning. Maybe you own 15 different Bibles at home. Because in America, our way is to collect Bibles. We may not use them every day, but we got 15 of them at home. And we're leaving them on our car dash, on our seat. We're leaving where people can see them. But does this mean that you're a follower of Jesus? Does this mean that you have a right relationship with him? We're quick to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. But do your actions each and every single day and your view of who Jesus is, who God is, does that really display a right relationship? Or are we simply a fan? You see, a fan is defined as an enthusiastic admirer. An enthusiastic admirer. Now, that almost sounds like a follower. Oh, I, I enthusiastically admire Jesus. But I think the difference between a fan and a follower is what do you do with that admiration? Do you truly allow it to change your life and to change each and every single day of your life? Are you molding Jesus into who you want him to be? Or are you allowing Jesus and your relationship with him to mold you who Jesus wants you to be? This is what we find in Deuteronomy 5, 33, Matthew 10, 38, and John 8, 12, Deuteronomy 31, 8. I'm going to read these to you, but if you want to write them down in your notes, there they are. We get a, a brief description, definition of what it means to follow after Jesus. Deuteronomy 5, 33, walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Matthew 10, 38. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Are you following after Jesus or are you walking in darkness and looking for the way out? All you need to do is look to Jesus and your path will be lit Live in the light, not in the darkness. 
I once preached on that topic, and I just love the idea of darkness conceals, light reveals. This is why in movies, anytime they have an intense action sequence, or in scary movies, horror movies, anytime that monster, that serial killer, whatever it is, is coming at you, it's dark in the movie scene. Because light reveals. And once it's light, you see all the imperfections in the movie. Or you, weren't be, you won't be scared because you'll be able to see, oh, that's just a person dressed up in a mask. Light reveals, darkness conceals. We need to live in the light so that we can see the way Jesus wants us to live. Deuteronomy 31.8 The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I give you all this in this long introduction because I think it relates to our message today. It relates as we talk about Palm Sunday. So I ask you to get the word ready. If you could please stand with your Bibles open, if you're able to, please stand, to John 12, 9-19 as we read this morning. John 12, 9 to 19, we read this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You may be seated. So maybe you're already guessing the direction of this message, of this sermon this morning. But I brought all that up before we read because I truly believe that these people also needed to define the relationship. They needed a DTR moment. They needed to define the relationship as they were in the presence of Jesus. And as they were worshiping him, as they were coming before him. They needed to ask themselves three questions. This morning, you need to ask yourself three questions. Today is Palm Sunday, and right now we celebrate the triumphant entrance of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on the same day as other Christians all over the globe, all over Bloomer. But let us not lose sight that we're not, in, we're not alone in this. Right now, there are people all over the globe worshiping God, reading his word, Studying it together and worshiping them together. That's powerful to think that we're not alone. But this is one of the few incidences in God's word in the Bible, which is shared across numerous books. Whether we look at John 12, 9 to 19, what we're in today, 
Matthew 21, Mark 11, or Luke 19, 28. Jesus rides in as a donkey. Hosanna is saying, and people come. And boy, do they come. We see that large crowds of people have come together to celebrate this day. In my research, I find that there could have been as many as 256,500 lambs slain this week. 256,500 lambs are slain. Now, that sounds like a lot to me because I recently helped the Bovies take care of some lambs. And that was just a few lambs. But here, on this week of Passover, there could have been 256,500 lambs slain for the sacrifice as they came into town for the Passover. Now, how do we get that number? Well, first of all, I'll say I'm no expert. This is my research. I don't sacrifice lambs. But where it comes from is that it was a minimum of 10 people per lamb. And this comes from an ancient census report that they found documenting in that city how many people might have been there, how many lambs might have been sacrificed. And if you do the math, if you do the numbers, that could mean up to 1 million or up to 2.6 million people could have been coming into town for this. The three questions you need to ask yourself as it's been in front of you here is what type of king are you looking for? What type of savior are you looking for? And what type of savior do you need? Little did these people know that Jesus was coming to also be a sacrifice, to be a savior. They saw him as a coming king. And in John 12, 9, I started there for a specific reason. I know this is before the actual Palm Sunday message, but it sets it up. It gives us context. We read... When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. When we think, or I think of Jesus' triumphant entry, I think of thousands of people coming to celebrate. We think of churches today, and we think of Bloomer Baptist Church, where a couple hundred people might come on a Sunday to celebrate, to worship him. We think of mega churches across America who may have thousands of people. We think of those televised mega churches that may have tens of thousands of people. But we do not think of up to 2.6 million people in the city at this time. 2.6 million people. This would not be the population of Bloomer, about 4,000 people. Not be Rice Lake, about 9,000 people. Eau Claire. 69,000 people. No, there is more. More people coming to celebrate the Passover. Let's look to some larger cities. Minneapolis, the population is just over 400,000 people. St. Paul, 200,000 people. Detroit has 688,000 people. So up to this point, you could just about add all these cities' populations together in order to try and get to the population that would be in the city at this time for the Passover. And the city that we see had large crowds coming to see his triumphant entry. Now here's where we get to the comparison. Chicago had 2.8 million people. 2.8 million. Los Angeles, 3.8 million. So we are somewhere in between adding all the cities together or getting up to the population of Chicago. 
That's how many people would be in the city at this time. I think it's important to think about that, because I don't know about you, but as I read God's word, I like to sometimes close my eyes and try and picture it. So it helps us to be able to picture that this wasn't just a little group of people. This wasn't just a couple hundred people. It wasn't just a couple thousand people, but this could have been a couple million people in the city at this time. Now, obviously, that might not have been all of the city was there to see him, but a lot were. What we also need to see about this number is that they were not all there for the right reasons. They needed, again, to define their relationship. What type of king are they looking for? They came into this, they, they saw Jesus coming into the city and they sang Hosanna to the king. Hosanna. But were they really praising him for the right reasons? Did they really understand who he was? I don't believe they did. Hosanna is often thought of as a declaration of praise. A word which stands for in deep, intense praise, honor, as when all of God. Now I think all of you know that. All of you as you sing, Hosanna. You know you're praising God, but Hosanna is similar to hallelujah, but is actually a plea for salvation. The Hebrew root words are found in Psalm 118.25, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us. So as these people are singing Hosanna, they're singing, Save us, Lord, save us. But these millions of people are not here for the right reasons. They are singing Hosanna, but they did not know the true king that they were seeking, the savior that was in front of them. They did not realize the savior that they needed. They were drawing near to Jesus for the wrong reasons. One, which would have been a number of them, as we read here, just wanted to see Lazarus, the man whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Jesus was a sideshow to them. Lazarus was a freak of nature because, after all, have any of you ever seen a dead man raised and walk? And that's what we read. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the account of him, but to see Lazarus, who had raised from the dead. Now they have a formerly dead man walking around with Jesus, giving them yet one more reason for the crowds to gather around him, to follow him. To become a fan or a follower, an enthusiastic admirer. I really think that statement defines what's going on here. He had a large group of people following him because they enthusiastically admired what he was doing. They also may have wanted to be there in case he would work another miracle. In case they would do something else. They were following him from city to city, from house to house, camping with him, listening to him because... What is this man going to do next? They simply changed the direction when they heard Jesus had come. The people in the town were already here for the Passover, a majority of them. Now, we have two separate crowds here. We have one crowd which is following Jesus, and we have one crowd that is in the city for the Passover. And when they hear Jesus is coming, they come to see him. Now, don't misunderstand me. They are coming to see Jesus triumphantly enter the city to fulfill prophecy. And some of them may have had pure hearts and, and pure reasoning to come and see him. But scripture also tells us that they're not coming just to see him. They're coming to see Lazarus. They're coming to see what, what more miracles may be seen. 
And Scripture tells us this. Scripture also tells us how these people will fall away from him. And on Friday, we'll talk about how they shout, crucify him. Crucify him. Because they did not have a right view of what king this is, what savior this is. But nonetheless, they come. And boy, do they come, despite their reasoning. They come. They come in such a great number that Pharisees are quoted as commenting that the whole world has come after him. Now, obviously, we know the whole world is not really there. The whole world may not even know of his existence at this point. But to the Pharisees seeing hundreds of thousands, millions of people following after him, like I said, I don't know how many people in the city really walked out to see him, but we have 2.8, up to 2.8 million people there. So definitely thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people could be coming to see him. And the Pharisees look down and see these people. And they think, oh, what are we going to do? Oh, no. But again, they're not following for the right reasons. John 12, 10 to 11, we read, The chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. The Pharisees also wanted to kill Lazarus. Why would the Pharisees and the Sadducees not like this, not like what Jesus was doing? The increasing crowds around Jesus threatened their very way of life. It threatened their authority. It threatened their positions in leadership. It threatened their income and their wealth. It threatened their pride politically. Politically, if everyone gathers around Jesus and starts following after him instead of them, there could be an uprising, a rebellion. And as there's that uprising, that rebellion, Rome and soldiers would have to squash them, would have to take away their freedom. Rome gave them a lot of freedom. They allowed them to lead their culture in a way which we wouldn't, well, maybe we'd have today or maybe we wouldn't have. But the moment there was a rebellion... Rome would squash it. If this was to occur, Rome would quickly squash it and throw the Pharisees out of power, out of their luxurious positions. This is one, way, one reason that the Pharisees wanted to quiet this whole situation. They wanted to get rid of any evidence. Theologically, for years the Sadducees have been telling people that they were there was never going to be a such possibility as a resurrection. Yet now, here walks a guy who is dead just a few days beforehand. And rather than change their way of thinking and teaching, they choose to want to silence the evidence. The chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. They wanted to kill Lazarus. They didn't want proof that what they'd been teaching was wrong. They didn't want evidence. They, they didn't want to have to admit, oh, I guess we're wrong. Somebody can be raised from the dead. But no, they wanted to continue in their positions. What type of king are you looking for? What type of savior are you looking for? What type of savior do you need? These are questions which they needed to ask, but we also need to ask. So I'm going to do something a little different this morning, and I hope that this, this doesn't backfire on me, but I'd like to ask everybody to close your eyes for just a moment. Some of you may already have your eyes closed, so you'll be following direction. So go ahead and close your eyes this morning. It's okay, the pastor's saying so. Now I want to ask you to picture this in your mind. 
Picture in your mind a king in all his splendor, all his majesty, his royal robe and his crown, his jewels, his ring upon his finger. What type of clothes does he wear? Picture that. How does he rule his kingdom? How does he walk? Does he walk confidently, arrogantly? Who walks with him? How does he serve? How does he fight? Now picture a king riding into a great city. Maybe think of some movies that you've seen, like, like Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Maybe you think of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Maybe you think of a king on a chariot, a white horse, sword drawn. But do you think of this king on a donkey? You may open your eyes now. Open your eyes if you're asleep. All right, look at your neighbor. If your neighbor is asleep, slap him on the back of the head to get Satan out of them because Satan's trying to separate them from the word of God today. What I wanted you to see, and maybe it did work, maybe it didn't work because I already knew the direction I was going, but Jesus is being celebrated as a coming king. But he does not ride into the great city as you or I would picture a king entering a city. He rides in humbly as a don on a donkey. That doesn't change the fact that he's riding in as king. But it's a different type of king. And as we read on, we see that many people from all over the known world would be coming into Jerusalem during this time. We talked about that. But we also see that they took branches of palm trees and cried out to him, Hosanna, meaning save us. They were quoting Psalm 118, 25 to 26, saying, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Palm branches were brought to the Passover as a symbol. Both Romans and Jews would use them in praise as a symbol of both strength as well as salvation that a conqueror brings. This nothing new but it is new for Jesus. And they would also have their cloaks on their back, and they would put their cloaks down for Jesus to ride into the city on his donkey with. They're welcoming home a king whom they thought was going to save them. But here's what I don't want you to miss. Here's what I want to make sure everybody's eyes are open for. They wanted a different king. They wanted a different savior. We know who we're worshiping as king and as savior today, but they did not. They welcomed with palm branches and their cloaks down a king, but they thought this would be an earthly king, a military leader, to clean house, to get rid of the corrupt system at hand, the oppression of Rome. Jesus came as a peacemaker. But he didn't come as a peacemaker who would pick up the sword and slash at his enemies. He didn't come as a peacemaker that would gather the troops. He came as a peacemaker who would willingly... Die upon the cross to be raised again to make peace in our hearts with God and to take our sins away. Jesus came in riding on a donkey. This is significant. This is not the first time that Jesus had entered the city, but it's the first time that he entered as king, claiming to be king. He had entered to worship, but now he's entering as king. And to start this process of being king over our sins, king over our life, dying for us. This entrance is much different than we might expect a king's entrance because he wasn't on a horse with sword drawn. He was on a donkey. He was on the colt of a donkey. 
a young donkey, one which we had never been ridden on before. And there is significance here. Even if Jesus' own disciples did not recognize this until he was glorified. We read this right here in Scripture, that his own disciples did not recognize the significance on this. I can see in other, in other books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it tells us the disciples were sent to get this colt, to get this donkey. And I can see myself as a disciple saying, well, Lord, I don't want you to ride on a donkey. You need to ride on this fantastic, white, beautiful horse with flowing, a flowing mane. We need to have your sword on it and a beautiful, uh, a beautiful blanket for you to sit upon. But no, he told his disciples to get a donkey, the colt of a donkey. Why? Well, one huge significance is to fulfill prophecy that we read in Zechariah. But another reason is actually the time and the context, the culture that we have here, is a king would ride into a city on a horse and with sword drawn if he was going to battle, physical battle. But a king would ride into a city on a donkey if he was coming in peace. A king would ride into a city on a donkey if he was coming in peace. Now, Jesus took it one step further. He rode on the colt of a donkey, one which had never had a man sit upon it. And that was to show honor to that king. Because Jesus was at a place of honor. This is the Son of God in man form coming to us. If riding off to battle or into battle, then he would often be on a chariot or a horse with all his armor and sword drawn. Herod would be coming into town with his entourage, and Pilate would come into town with a possession of soldiers and chariots. What a contrast we have to Jesus entering the city on a donkey. Talk about humility. He comes in humbly. How many of you have ever sat on a donkey? But I bet a lot of you have sat on a horse. Jesus was not the king and savior they were looking for, and they would soon realize this, but he was the king that they needed. He was the savior that they needed. A king on a donkey, a colt, coming to save them. Coming in humbly, not to make war with Rome, but to die for us, to make war for us in our lives with our sins. Here would be a sacrifice up on a cross, one final sacrifice on Passover, to be that final sacrificial lamb, there would be no longer be need for 256,500 lambs to be slain. Because all we needed was that one Savior, that one Jesus, the one sacrificial lamb. But again, they wanted somebody to clean house, but not their house. They wanted somebody to clean the house around them, to clean Rome, so that they could live a more comfort life, a life of more freedom. But they were still in bondage to their sins. They didn't realize the freedom they needed. We needed one final Passover lamb, and we got it. As we read verses 16 to 19 again, we read, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, 
The world has gone after him. The Pharisees now know who Jesus is. They now know where he is. The Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill Lazarus. But they weren't going to do it now because it would make it even worse. If they kill Jesus now with these hundreds of thousands of people following him, these two different crowds following him, the one crowd which is following him witness as a witness to what he did raising Lazarus to the dead from the dead, and the second crowd coming to witness this king coming into the city, shouting, Hosanna, save us from Rome. Well, then it could unleash an all-out war, an all-out rebellion. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees would lose control. But Jesus knew his plan. He knew his father's plan. And just a few days later, he would be crucified. He would force their hand so that we could gain freedom. Jesus knew what he was coming to do. And Jesus had courage. He knew as he came into that city on donkey, on the, on the cold of a donkey, what would be happening to him soon. And he didn't ride in on a horse to protect himself. He didn't grab a horse and a chariot and ride in the opposite direction. He rode into the city on the donkey. Also, Les Christie summarizes Palm Sunday in this way. Palm Sunday sermons typically stress that Jesus' entry into, into Jerusalem was a time of triumph and great honor. But by the time Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, he'd already been branded an outlaw by the religious leaders seeking to kill him. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is not so much a coronation as it is a, an act of supreme courage. His example should encourage Christians of every age to be witnesses for him, no matter the consequences. Jesus rode into the city knowing that it would lead to his crucifixion, knowing that it would lead to his persecution and his torture. And yet he did it anyways because he knew God's plan. He knew God's will. We too know what God's will is for us. We too know what we're called to do, and we're called to ride into the city, ride into all nations proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. Do we do it? These people needed to define the relationship. They needed to define who is Jesus. Jesus told them who he was. The prophecies told them that this man would be coming, the son of God would be coming, riding in on a donkey, the colt of a donkey. And yet, they still didn't recognize what they needed saved from. They didn't grasp the full picture. Sometimes we need a different perspective. We need to sit back and really look. We need to really meditate. We really need to think, what is God trying to show us? What is God trying to tell us? It's so obvious in his word, but we try and understand it in our own minds, and our minds are not fully able to grasp this. We need the Spirit to help us to understand what God's will is. We need to pray, God, help us to understand this word today and help us to act according to your will and not my own. We've been in Jesus' time all this time. But I want to bring you back to today. So if your eyes are still closed, you can open them. But I want to bring you back to today as we wrap up, as we give you the application or the takeaway. Jesus could end war, poverty, homelessness. He could eliminate stress, financial stress, marital stress, work stress, emotional stress, 
family conflict and fear. But what he did back then, and he continues to do today, is to go to the cross and sacrifice himself to die for us. To give us a different type of king. The king that brings peace, but not with a sword, with a cross. The type of king which was willing to sacrifice himself for the love of us. To give us a future and to give us life. He makes a way for you to have a relationship with God through his resurrection. He gives you the hope of resurrection from the dead and eternal life, ourself. Through his Holy Spirit, he wants to change your life. What type of savior do you need? What type of king do you need? What are you looking for? Are you looking for a savior to save your marriage? Are you looking for a savior to save you from your addictions, from your pain, from your suffering, your depression, your anger, whatever it is? He will give that to you. But it might not, it might not be in the timing or in the way that you think. And he's not giving that to you if you don't first surrender your life to him. Profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because that's what he is. He dies for your sins so that you might have life. What type of Savior do you need? The people in this scripture were looking for a king to save them. They were looking for a Savior. They were singing, Hosanna, save us. But the majority of them were looking for a Savior to save them from Rome. They didn't have a right perspective on who Jesus was. Jesus is here for you now. Define the relationship. In John 3, 17, read, For God did not send his Son into the world to, the, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The king is coming, but is he the king that you think you need? Or is it the king that you want? You need a different type of king. You need a king which is going to rule over your life, yes, but you need a king that's going to give you life first. This is that king. Condemning the world or condemning Rome would not have been the salvation that they truly needed. Only Christ's sacrifice on the cross would truly save them. And this is what we'll be in on Friday. So please join us on Friday for Good Friday service at 5 o'clock. We will also be taking communion on Friday as we remember what he did on that cross for us. And then Easter Sunday. Don't miss Easter Sunday next week. Pay attention to your bulletins for a lot of information and details. Let me close in prayer, and we'll have the band come up for one final 